Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, April the 20th, 2022. It is currently 5.33 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two stories above a street here in Abilene, Texas. Two stories above an Abilene street. Does that make sense? I, I hope it does. That that that's that's what we're going with. Welcome everyone. Yes, I'm coming to you live from the second floor bedroom here in my home here in Abilene, Texas, and wherever you may be listening, whenever you may be listening, however you may be listening, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Now it is Wednesday. Now, if you if you follow along with our Bible study exercise, you know that we're right there in the middle of the week, and typically on Saturday, we wrap up that week's study, and then sometimes Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, sometimes Sunday afternoon, we introduce the new week of study. But right now, because typically for the Bible study exercises, and this is a Bible study exercise episode, if you're not familiar, the Bible study exercise is a series of podcast episodes where we dedicate an entire week to studying a passage of Scripture. So typically the way it works is we dedicate one week, one passage of Scripture. So on Saturday, we wrap up the study, and then usually Saturday afternoon or Sunday, we introduce a new week of study. Uh, I was assuming that everyone knows what I'm talking about, just to make sure any new people is not, are not, is not confused. That's typically how it works. But right now we're doing something unique for the Bible study exercise. Instead of dedicating one week to a passage of Scripture, we're dedicating probably close to eight weeks, eight weeks of study. Probably It's probably going to be close to eight weeks for one passage of Scripture. And so it is Wednesday. It's right there in the middle of the week. A lot of times what happens on Wednesdays is I use the Wednesday evening service at Victory Baptist Church to really add to the study or to, or to really go in depth. Uh, because a lot of times for the Bible study exercise, I do more like, okay, I, sometimes some of the episodes are, I do a little bit of teaching. Uh, sometimes it's just me giving out homework assignments and giving assignments. But a lot of times on Wednesday nights from Victory Baptist Church, I really go in and do more teaching. Well, tonight that's not going to occur. So I thought, well, it's Wednesday. We're in the middle of the week. I've got to at least turn on the microphone and do a little bit of work on Matthew chapter 24 because I don't want people to 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 just, you know, lose focus, get distracted. So I just wanted to turn on the microphone and say, hey, it's Wednesday. Don't forget Matthew 24. We're going to be working on it for the next eight weeks. Let's not get discouraged. Let's not lose focus. Let's not get distracted. Let's stay working on Matthew chapter 24. So hopefully you're still working on it. And I think what we're going to do for this probably next, probably close to an hour. It may not be a full hour. Hopefully will be beneficial. Now, most of you know that we have a curriculum that goes along with the Bible study exercise. And that curriculum is absolutely free. If you would like access to it, all you have to do is email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Just say, I want the curriculum. I send you a link. You sign up at ministry grid. I think it's ministrygrid.com or ministrygrid.org. And uh, you just register, and then it's free. We, we, we don't ask for any money or anything like that, and you have access to the curriculum. A lot of times the curriculum is there just to kind of supplement what we're doing in the podcast episodes and what you're doing in your homework. It's just kind of there as an additional resource. 
But I thought tonight we would just go to the curriculum and just work through it together live on in this episode for this live broadcast. If you're not listening live, whenever you hear this episode, in this episode, and we would just go through the curriculum itself and just see what how they handle it, what they do. We've done a lot of work so far in Matthew 24. We have, we have, we've done, well, I'm not going to go through everything we've done. We've done a lot of, a lot of church history. We've looked at different systems of eschatology. Um, what we were really going to do tonight, the original plan was to dig into Matthew 24, really working through it, uh, looking at it from a, the view of preterism or from a preterist point of view. We will do that probably Sunday night. It'll, it'll probably be Sunday night when we do that. Uh, so hopefully that will be beneficial. But tonight we're going to kind of take a detour, go to the curriculum and just see what it has to say in regards to the passage. See how, do they handle it from a preterist point of view, a futurist point of view? How do they handle it? Do they ignore 70 AD? There's so many things we've talked about. Please go back and listen to all of the episodes on Matthew 24. It will definitely be worth your time and hopefully beneficial. But we're going to go to the curriculum. So if you have access to the curriculum, this is the perfect time to open it. If you do not have access to the curriculum right now, Please email me as soon as you can, and when the program is over, I will send you the link. But let's just jump in and see how the curriculum handles Matthew chapter 24. Does that sound good? All right, Matthew chapter 24. If you open the curriculum, the first thing you see is introduction. And the introduction is a photograph, or it's a picture, of someone with a checkered flag. It looks like at an, uh, maybe, a, a, I can't say that's NASCAR. It, it's some kind of car race, it looks like, from where the person is standing, the way it looks like. But they have a big checkered flag, and they're waving it. If you've ever seen, a uh, you know, an Indy race or a Indy car race or a NASCAR race or, or just any kind of, of, of vehicle race, you, you, you'll, you'll know what I'm referring to. It's a big checkered flag. And this... Whenever I, whenever the curriculum gives us a photograph, I always try to interpret its symbolism. And clearly, this is the, the checkered flag represents the end of a race. The end of a race. So that already gives me an idea that they're really going to go after Matthew 24 and look at it as referring to the end, like the second coming, the end of the world. And I, well, that, that, that gives you the, the theological perspective they're coming from and their, 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 their view of eschatology is clearly coming through right there as well. But that's what they have, the checkered flag, the end, all right, of the race. Now, immediately after that, the very next page, they give this. Christ's return. Stop right there. If the checkered flag was not a dead giveaway, clearly this next, Christ return, living with the end in mind. Immediately, the curriculum wants us to know that we're getting ready to study a passage. Are we getting ready? Well, they don't tell you immediately what passage we're getting ready to study, but clearly they're leading you into the idea. In a sense, they are conditioning your hermeneutic that you're getting ready to look at something dealing with the return of Jesus Christ. They're clearly going from a future to looking at it from a futuristic standpoint about the end, like the end of the world, the end of something and Christ return, and that we need to live with the end in mind. Now, is Matthew 24 there to give us 
a picture of the is to point us to the end to Christ's return and that we need what we need to take from Matthew 24 is that we need to learn to live with the end in mind is that really what Matthew 24 is all about I, I, we, we've asked lots of questions remember the Bible study exercise sometimes I like to give you an answer sometimes I like to just throw out a question and getting you thinking and struggling with it here's what they say if you want to know about the future, if you want to know about the future, people will line up at your door. Economists like to give financial forecasts. Political analysis analysts will predict who might win the next election. Sports reporters will predict the t- which team will win the next championship. But who can tell us what things will be like at the end of the world? Stop right here. Once again, this is, this is conditioning you, right? Hey, we're going to be talking about the end of the world. We're talking about, about Christ's return. We're, 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 that's, that's what they want you to start thinking about. Now, now the, reason, the reason I want to point this out is because you need to, with the Bible study exercises, what I love to do is, is not only do I like to get you studying the Bible, I like to do a lot about giving you Bible study tips and, and Bible study methods and giving you, you know, information about how to do hermeneutics. So let me just say that this is very, this is why it is so dangerous. And I'm going to use that word and, and I'm not using it just to be sensational, but I believe it is actually dangerous. I believe it's actually damaging in many cases, to pick up a commentary, a Bible study guide, a devotional guide, or anything else before you study a text of Scripture. If you, or, or if you just read Scripture and immediately go to your study Bible, study guide, commentary, I think it's damaging and it's dangerous because these, these publications, these resources, have a tendency to in a sense, condition your mind saying, hey, this is what it's about. Hey, this is what it's about. This is what it's about before you really dig into it. So for example, right here, I have next to me, I have three Bible study guides, all right? These are called Feature, a daily Bible study guide. All right. This one is for January through March 2022. This one is from uh, for October through December 2021, and this one is April through June 2022. All right. I have three of them. Right. I love these things. I get them every quarter. I love them. But I'm just going to grab the one April through June 2022. All right. Today is uh, April the 20th. All right. Now. I just opened it. If I go to April the 20th, the first thing I see is April the 20th. There's a heading here that says, the Lord has helped us. And then underneath April the 20th, it says 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Now, what I do whenever I have a devotional guide is I will see that 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Now, sometimes I can't do this because of time, right? So sometimes I will violate this principle but I'm very careful not to draw any conclusions. So sometimes if I'm busy, I'll be like 1 Samuel 7 through 17. Oh, okay, I may be able to read the passage really quick and then I'll just read the devotional, right? Okay, and, but I have to be careful because in many cases that is conditioning my mind and what I should see in 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. So what, but what I attempt to do, if, if all possible, 
1 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. I take the devotional guide and I close it and I lay it aside and I don't touch it again. I grab a Bible and a notebook and I read 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. And then I just read it, read it over and over and over at least five times. Maybe I do like a chapter summary. I'll start using some kind of Bible study method. I may outline it. I just start working on it on paper without reading anything. I don't want to study by, I don't want to see anything. I don't want to hear. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm plugging my ears. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. Because the second I read anything, it begins to condition my mind. This is what you should see. This is what you should see. And you don't want that. The only thing you want to see is the text. The only thing you want to see are the words used in the text. The only thing you want to see is what the text is saying by the words that are being used. So here, the Bible study curriculum is immediately, in a sense, poisoning the well. It's conditioning you. Hey, they show you a checkered flag. The end. The end of a race. They immediately tell you, Christ return. All right. The second coming. Living with the end in mind. If you want to know about the future, people will line up at your door. Future, future, end of the world, Christ's return. Then they name some people about, you know, who would like to talk about the future. Economists like to give financial forecasts. Political analysts will like to predict who may win the next election. Sports reporters will predict which team will win the championship. But who can tell us what things will be like at the end of the world. I mean, they are telling you, look at this passage from a futuristic perspective. It's pointing you to the second coming. It's pointing you to the end of the world. So before you even pick up the passage, which it's going to be Matthew 24, they've already poisoned your mind in a sense. They've already leading you to a conclusion before you study the text. You've got to not allow that kind of game, that manipulation to do that to you. You don't want, no, you don't want any manipulation. You don't want any poisoning. You want to see the text. Now, I understand when you write a Bible study guide, you got to have that introduction. Look, pastors do this. I hate to say this. I'm going to make some pastors mad. Pastors manipulate you that same way, right? Most pastors, they start their sermon with an introduction, an opening illustration, an introduction, in many cases within that introduction, within that illustration, with whatever they, however they start their sermon, they're basically telling you, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. Very few say, okay, here's the passage. We're going to be studying Romans chapter eight verses, whatever, whatever. Let's start working on the passage. They almost kind of give you what their interpretation is going to be sometimes at the beginning. They're conditioning you. Because if you tell people this is what you're going to see, then you show them they have a tendency to see what you just told them they were going to see. <laughs> that, that, that is, I don't like that. I'm not going to tell you what we're going to see. We're going to go study the text and then figure out what we've seen. I, I'm not going to tell you what you're going to see. But we're going to act like I, the way I like to preach is I don't even know what we're going to see. I like to preach like I don't even have a clue. I like to preach like, I don't even know what's getting ready to happen. I do our Bible study exercises that way. Like, I don't have a clue. I don't even know what's getting ready to happen. I don't have the answer. And then that makes you look at the text and try to figure out what the text says by the words that are used. This is, in a sense, conditioning you. 
you're going to be studying about Christ's return and the end of the world. So look what how, look how they do this. But who can tell us what things will be like at the end of the world? No one is qualified to tell us about this all-important subject except the perfect, sinless Son of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did in a section of his teaching called the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 through 25. So immediately, they've just poisoned you. Matthew 24 and 25 is about the end of the world. That, that's what the curriculum does. Now you're saying, well, this is the curriculum you use. I know. Okay, I, listen, I, I, I love using curriculum because it's forcing me to study Matthew 24, which I may not have chosen. So I like being told what to study. Now, this is to supplement. I like people to see different perspectives. I'm not afraid of different perspectives. I'm not afraid like, okay, no, 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 just listen to me. No, I want you to have a curriculum that in many cases may go against with what I say. So then you benefit greatly. In the Bible study exercise, you hear my perspective. You see the perspective in the curriculum. Sometimes we agree. Sometimes we disagree. You get both. Well, eh. Good point, uh, someone just said, and they basically said you can't question them because it came directly from Jesus. Yes, the implication is that uh, that's ex- that what Jesus is doing in Matthew 24 through 25 is telling you about the end of the world. That di- this is, they're telling you how, what Je- Jesus meant to tell you about the end of the world, and they're, and that there's no, they're, they're basically telling you there's no other way to look at it. Well, if you know church history, you know that's not true. There's been lots of questions about how to look at Matthew 24 and 25 in church history. We went through a lot of church history and our discussion on this subject. But you're right. In a roundabout way, they're saying, hey, this is what Jesus is doing here. So there's, and, and, and they are, especially when I was a young Christian, I would have been like, okay, I would have grabbed my notebook and I would have said, okay, Matthew 24 through 25 is about the end of the world. This is the teaching of Jesus. I would have written something like that down in my notebook. Because I didn't have the, the knowledge at that time. I had, had not been to Bible college or seminary or Bible, all the different schools that I've gone to. I haven't gone anywhere. So I, I wasn't yet realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is preconditioning. Preconditioning. Avoid preconditioning when it comes to your Bible study. Look at the text. All right. But let's see what they do with this. Christ did not tell us everything about the end times. That may satisfy our curiosity, but he told us what, uh, told us when we need to know and what Christ taught impacts the way we live today. So ask the Lord to prepare your heart to hear, hear clearly from his word as we examine his teaching in this study. That is the introduction and it brings us to session one, stand strong to the end. All right, so they've already told us this is Jesus telling us at least some things about the end of the world. He may not give us everything we want to know, but th- this has an implication on how we should live today. So it's about the end of the world, and it's going to tell us how we should live in light of that end. It's just stated dogmatically. They don't even hint that there could be some different perspectives. And many preachers preach that way, which drives me crazy, Right? Here's how you need to understand it. Well, no, you need to let all your people know. There may be 900 different other ways of interpreting it in church history. And some people say, well, why would you do that? Because my job is to equip them. They're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Guess what the best way to help them not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine? They know all the different perspectives sitting in church, not when they go find it somewhere on the internet. 
right? So already they're going to take us in a, in a specific direction. Let's see where they go here, all right? Question one, here's the question they ask. When have you been surprised by how difficult something turned out to be? Now, these, this curriculum is designed like most curriculum in the modern church for a small group setting. So what you're supposed to do is if you have a small group, you have everyone there, you got to break the, it's called breaking the ice. You got to get people talking because you'll get, if you'll get them talking about just a normal subject, which they'll be much more inclined to do so, then you kind of break that ice so that they may be more willing to talk when it comes to doctrine and theology. So it's kind of like a little psychological manipulation here. Whether you want to condemn it or not, that's okay. It's just, that's the way, that's what you're doing. So you get everyone in a circle, you know, or semi-circle and you're like, hey guys, all right. So, when have you been surprised by how difficult something turned out to be? Go, All right? And so then everyone goes around the room. Well, there was this one time, and, I, and everybody's like, oh, that's interesting. Now, sometimes what happens is that turns into 15 to 20 minutes. So you're having 15 to 20 minutes really not gaining any information, but you're breaking the ice. So you, you, can, you can agree or disagree with how, how you think that should work, but okay. All right. Now, the point. Expect difficulty when you choose to follow Christ. Hmm. Now, the point of this session for the curriculum is that we should expect difficulty when you choose to follow Christ. Is that the point of Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14? Because right underneath the point, the passage is Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Matthew 24, let's look at it really quick. Matthew 24, let's just read it, 1 through 14. Now, you're supposed to have been reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it. From all the people that I've heard from, I think, this week, um, I think for, all, for, for, for the time we've been working on it so far, I think most people agree that, or acknowledge that they're still just struggling with observation, trying to figure out the chapter summary method. I gave a lot of homework already, but let's just read it. It won't hurt for you to hear it. In fact, you, the more you hear it, the better, the better your observation is. Matthew 24, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that should not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Verse four, and Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of war. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated for all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and you shall and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved." 
and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Stop right there. Now, clearly, I can kind of see what they're doing. You read that pa- that passage, and it speaks of a lot of difficult things. Famine, war, false teachers, persecution. Yeah, the love of many will wax cold. It seems to be talking about a very difficult, trying time. So what they want to do is immediately say, hey, when you're going to follow Christ, you better expect some difficulty. Look at the difficulties mentioned in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Now, immediately I can see what, at least from the surface, we'll see as we go further into this, they immediately seem to be ignoring who it's originally written to, its context, and they're just immediately wanted to make it about us. They want to make it about you because that's what so much of the Bible curriculum, study curriculum, and how many sermons are work that we've got to make it practical to you. I got to make it practical to you. No, what we need to do is try to figure out what the text is saying. So they're really, they're really trying to just lead you in a certain direction. Let's see what they have to say here. The Bible meets life. That's the next section here. So we have the point, expect difficulty when you choose to follow Christ. Okay, well, good point. Someone just said, hey, but it doesn't have to do with following Jesus. It's about the destruction of the temple. I completely agree. I completely agree. But uh, I'm just saying that that's clearly what direction they're going. And they're not even bothering to consider the original recipients or the context. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Here we go. So they gave the point, expect difficulty when you choose to follow Christ. And then the passage is Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Now, the Bible meets life. Many of us look forward to leaving high school behind with all its challenges, only to experience a whole new set of challenges. When we graduate, we leave leave the seemingly endless projects, exams, and schedules behind us only to face new deadlines and stresses in the workplace. When I was a college student, I lived next door to someone who began attending my church. When he became a Christian, I tried to encourage him in his new faith, but after a couple of months, I noticed he became distanced from everyone at the church. When we talked, he admitted he had become disillusioned because he still struggled with temptation. He assumed assumed Christ would shield him from the struggles of life. When I reminded him that trials are part of the Christian life, he seemed intent on staying discouraged. Unfortunately, difficulties don't leave us when we choose to follow Christ. Jesus never glosses over the challenges we face as his children. When he spoke of his return, Jesus also spoke of the hardships we face, difficulties that would even increase. Thankfully, however, we do not face them alone. Now, again, this seems to be completely absent. Everything in that whole illustration is completely, it's just missing any connection to what the text is actually about. This is about you trying to live out your Christian life and don't get discouraged because bad things are going to happen. But hey, you're not going to be alone. Okay, well, well, what? Okay. Could we please look at the actual text? See, so much of preaching and so much, so many of the publications published to help people study the Bible and many, I don't think they are actually there to help you study the actual Bible. They, they, they just kind of give you the topic and you're just studying a topic that, yeah, there's, there's so many problems with this so far. I mean, they're, they're, they're literally leading you away from the meaning of the text. They're not leading you into the meaning of the text. They may be 
This is important. Sometimes sermons will lead you into maybe a, a powerful spiritual discussion that you may find moving or practical, but the key, key is they may have moved you into something that you feel is useful or a blessing or is practical, but did they, by leading you to that, did they lead you away from the text? Does the sermon lead you into the text or away from the text? This is leading me far away from the text currently. But here's the next part. So they give us Matthew 24, 1 through 3, and they quote it. And I'm going to read it again. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, what shall the, what, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? All right, so they quote Matthew 24, one through three, which again, you would think anyone reading this would be like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is about the destruction of the temple that stood when Jesus was on earth. And that was destroyed in 70 AD. But so far, they've not given us any indication about anything. But let's see now if they will. Here, here's what they have. Keywords. The Mount of Olives, which, note, interesting, they say the key word is the Mount of Olives. I think, wouldn't the key word be the temple? I mean, I mean, every, uh, Jesus departed out of the temple. Look at verse 1. Jesus departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus says, see you not all these things, referring to the buildings of the temple. I verily ask unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another, speaking of the temple. Okay, then he said upon the Mount of Olives. I don't know why the key words would be the Mount of Olives. You would think the key word would be the temple, but okay, here we go. The Mount of Olives, a mountain ridge about the eastern side, along the eastern side of Jerusalem, running north and south. It stood about 200 feet above the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley. The temple in Jerusalem, now, now they do give us some information about the temple here, which is good. The temple in Jerusalem was quite impressive. It was considered an architectural marvel in the Middle East. Even though the disciples had just been in the temple, they were wowed by the structure and called it to Jesus' attention. Mark recorded in the gospel that one of the disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? Jesus responded with words surely no one was expecting. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And trouble and troubled quite, quite likely fell on the group. All right, so in other words, he says, hey, all of this is going to be destroyed. And they're saying probably, most likely, trouble immediately fell on the group. They were like, wait, what is going on? This could not have been an easy thing for the disciples to hear because the temple was the center of political and religious life for Israel. The disciples could not imagine such a devastating catastrophe. That's why they equated it with the end of the world. I'll stop right there. All right, that, that sounds good. That sounds they got us focused on the temple. They got us focused on the destruction of the temple. They got us focused on the fact that the disciples would have equated this with the end of the world. They, okay, this is good. Now, why did they, but they started this about pointing us to the return of Christ in the end of the world. But look what they do immediately after that paragraph. They have a banner that says question two. And look immediately what they have to say. What do you wonder about 
What do you wonder about when it comes to the end times? No, no, wait a minute. If this is designed for, say, a, a small group, look what you've just done. You started talking about basically the destruction of the temple. They don't mention 70 AD. They don't even mention when this happened. They get them think to, they get you thinking about that temple, and then immediately you're supposed to in, interject into the small group. Hey guys, what do you wonder? What do you think about when it comes to the end times? What do you what do you question? What do you want? What do you think about? And you get everyone now going around the room asking questions. Well, I think about or I wonder about this when it comes to the end times, or I wonder about this. And, and you know, Susie thinks about this, and and John thinks about this. And, and I, okay, right, but so. I, I, is that where you interject the question? I don't know. But then immediately after that, they, they do this. And the disciples' mind, they were essentially asking one question, assuming the temple's destruction and the coming of Christ would trigger a single event, the end of the world. To their way of thinking, if the temple were ever destroyed, it surely must signal that the world was ending abruptly. This created a great teaching moment for Jesus. By that time, they had arrived at the Mount of Olives, a ridge east of Jerusalem, roughly a mile long. The mount rises about 200 feet above the city as they look down on Jerusalem and the temple. It provided the perfect setting for such a fascinating topic for teaching. As we move forward in Matthew 24, we may wonder, is Christ describing a fulfilled event in history or a future event to come? The answer is both. All right, well, I'm glad they at least acknowledge there's history in this. That is good. Now, everything they did at the beginning was to condition you to think about the return of Christ. They even throw in a question right there about the end times. So here's what I, I, what I, what I don't like is what happens in this kind of setting is there'll be like, there'll be an acknowledgement that, yeah, there's some things about the past, but they're going to probably immediately make the focus on the future. Let's see what they do here. All right. Here, let's see what they do here. And this was one of the, the kind of the assignments I gave Sunday night was to go through here and find if they mentioned 70 AD. And I think they mentioned it. Here, here it comes. All right. Are you ready? Is Christ, so as we move forward in Matthew 24, we may wonder, is Christ describing a fulfilled event in history or a future event to come? The answer is both. Most interpreters contend that Jesus was partially describing the historical account of the Roman destruction of the temple. Jesus' words came to pass with precision about 40 years later. The Romans raided Jerusalem in AD 70 and Emperor Titus set fire to the temple. Jesus said, Jesus said, there shall not be left here one stone upon another. Some historians speculate that the stones and the temple may have been uh, pried apart to collect the gold leaf that melted as the temple burned. One challenging feature to Jesus' teaching in the coming verses is that he does not sharply distinguish between when he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and when he was referring to the end time. With that in mind, notice what Jesus did not, what with that in mind, notice that Jesus did not answer the when part of their question. If you were to know the exact timing, it would cut off any sense of urgency and need to depend on Christ in our lives. He wants our focus to be on him. I'll stop right here. Okay. At least they acknowledge, which I am very grateful for. This is a good thing. 
that there's no real distinction made about when it's supposedly the past or when it's supposedly the future. And because there's no distinction that is clearly made within the text, guess what that means? We make that distinction. Oh, another drum roll. That means fallible people are making that distinction. That means there's a high probability that we are wrong, <laughs> okay? I know nobody likes that, but I'm sorry. That this just it needs to be said from the pulpit. That means that whatever we whatever can go if you believe that that Matthew 24 contains history and future. It references the past and it references the future. Make sure you understand you're going to be the one making the distinction. You're just the one arbitrarily making the distinction. You may think you have a good textual basis for it. You may think you have a good reason, but I've got a book right here that will argue all of it refers to the past. None of it refers to the future. And you'll say, well, they're wrong. Right? Yeah. And you'll say they're wrong. They'll say you're wrong. Everyone will say everyone else is wrong except your interpretation, but it all comes down to wild speculation. It's okay to acknowledge that fallible people trying to understand the infallible word of God fallibly. In other words, we are going to be probably wrong in some way, shape or form. I know you're not supposed to say that. You said, well, you'll, you'll destroy people's assurance. No, guess what? I'm not destroying your assurance. I'm being honest with you that you need to understand that it's fallible people just trying to make arbitrary distinctions that, oh, that's past. Nope, that's future. Nope, that's past. That's future. And there's some who believe the whole thing's past. And then they say, and another thing, Jesus doesn't say when it's going to happen. He doesn't give them the when. Now, the, the kind of get out of free jail card is, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing God didn't tell them when. It's a good thing God didn't tell them when because, you know, if he told them when, uh, look, <laughs> Oh, oh man, this drives me crazy. See, if he, if he would have told them when, uh, this would have cut off any sense of urgency and need to depend on Christ in our lives. See, see, this is a good thing he didn't tell them when. It's a good thing he didn't tell them when because this would have cut off any sense of urgency. Now, in any, I have a problem with that. I know Christians, we always have to, I hate to say it. We have, we run around with a stack, you know, in Monopoly, get out of free jail card. I think Christians run around in their back pocket with a bunch of get God out of jail free cards. Let, let's, let's, we don't want to make God look bad, but let's be honest here. Read Josephus's account of 70 AD, which was homework for the Bible study exercise. Read how horrible it was. Read how bad it was. Now, some people may question Josephus's, uh, Josephus's accuracy, but I think, I think for the most part, if we believe that his, his account of what happened in 70 AD is accurate, it's horrifying. It's horrible. So you would wish that Jesus would have said, hey, guys, in 30-something years, the, this temple's going to be destroyed, and you need to be aware of it. It's going to happen in 70 AD. But they're like, no, 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 we're, we're glad that God didn't give anyone an exact time. It's, it's a good thing. It's not a good thing for the people who got caught in Jerusalem and died. It wasn't good for them. 
Right? So, I mean, come on, we can be honest with that. I mean, sometimes Christians just think, here, oh, wait, it's, it's a good thing he didn't tell anybody when. It's a good thing. Because, I mean, if he, I mean, for crying out loud, if he gave us the exact time, we wouldn't have any urgency in our life. I mean, <laughs> come on, come on now. All right. But let, let's see. <laughs> it just seems so, it just seems so uh, horribly put. All right, here we go. Jesus' knowledge of these events reminds us that God has prior knowledge of all things. Oh, yeah, that's, there we go. God has prior knowledge of all things. Never forget, that creates massive philosophical problems. God has prior knowledge of all things, meaning he had prior knowledge of all things before he created a world, knowing exactly what was going to happen, all the pain and all the suffering and all the death, yet he created the world anyway. All right, so... You, you can't, you, you, you can do everything you can to get around that truth, but you can't get around that truth, all right? Um, Jesus' knowledge of these events reminds us that God has prior knowledge of all things. The end will not be a series of haphazard conclusions or collisions and accidents. God has a plan that he governs with a definite course and direction, all right, so the end is not going to be a haphazard series of collisions and accidents. God is controlling it. God is directing it, which again, you, that, you, that raises some major issues philosophically because if God is directing it, then, he, then somehow the pain, the suffering, and all the problems are somehow a part of his plan. Yes, we, we've had these discussions many times, but I just find how, and one, and one sentence Christians will acknowledge some of that, and in the next sentence, they'll try to act like God has... God's not responsible for anything. All right. It doesn't work that way. All right. Um, God has a plan that he governs with a de- definite course and direction. We can live at peace as the world, as the world approaches its end because our loving father has a perfect knowledge of the end of the world. And Jesus promised, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, please note, they immediately, like they, they mentioned 70 AD. They've acknowledged some of this as history, but once again, they emphasize the end of the world. That's how they started this curriculum, the curriculum for this session. They, they keep at every opportunity focus on the end of the world, focus on the end of the world, focus on the end of the world. That, that's really where they want the reader to put their focus. Then they go to Matthew 24, 6 through 8. Here we go. Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man, sh- uh, no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars, rumors of war. See that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes and diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Key word, Christ. Uh, Transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed one. The Greek translation is Christos, from which is derived Christ. Jesus is the true Messiah who liberates from sin and death. Jesus' response to the disciples' question is the longest answer given to any question asked in the New Testament. Now, that's an interesting thing to note. Now, please, you may want to write that down. Jesus' response to the disciples' question is the longest answer given to any question asked in the New Testament. That That's pretty. Did, did anyone catch that? Did anyone see that? Um, I... I've seen a lot of people's homework that they've sent me. I don't think I've seen it. If you place that in your notes and if you caught that, 
And I missed that. I apologize. You should have been given a like, that's good. Um, if you, if you have anything that would call that into question as not being accurate, let me know. But that is an interesting observation. All right, here we go. The first part of Jesus' response, 4 through 8, contains warnings of several characteristics of the period before Christ will return. Please note. Immedi- Remember they said there's history here? And immediately what they do here? Hey, the, these, these first parts of Jesus' response contains warnings of several characteristics of the period before Christ will return. They immediately are going to the return of Christ. They've now forgotten 70 AD. They've just magically like, hey, this contains history and future, but we're going to immediately focus on the future. Let's see if they bring in any history here. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that the destruction of Jerusalem did not necessarily mean that the end of the world had arrived. The signs mentioned in these verses are general in tone, marking a gradual progression towards the end. Deceivers. Jesus warned of false messiahs. Take heed that no man deceive you. This conveys the idea of making certain and detecting the counterfeit messiahs. Most of us are surprised when we hear of a smooth-talking cult leader that has swayed seemingly normal people to follow them. Those who have fallen prey to the arguments of false teachers will tell you it's easier to be deceived than one might imagine. Uh, The way to stay alert in the face of spiritual deception is to become familiar with God's word that will quickly recognize false teaching when we hear it. Please note, immediately... uh, Okay, true, true. Uh, someone said they didn't put that directly in their, their notes that this is the longest answer, but they did indicate in their outline that the answer goes from verse 4 all the way to verse 51, which would indicate a very, very long answer. So that, that's a good point. But So now back to the curriculum. Please note what they do here. They turn the entire warning about deceivers into something that you and I need to be worried about because this somehow is focused, is a is a sign for the return of Jesus. Now, I, I I have major problems here. I have major problems here. First of all, they completely remember they said that this contains history and future. Remember that they said that. Well, guess what? They've com- they, they've they've forgotten that point relatively quick, because now they go to the very first thing Jesus says about deceivers. And if we go to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 4, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So he immediately, his first thing to warn them of is deceivers and deception. The curriculum doesn't even try to apply this to 70 AD. They don't even care. This is about us. Now, I've got to stop here for a second and show you how utterly insane that is. How is deceivers and false Christ a sign of any significance dealing with the second coming. There have been false Christ and false teachers. I mean, you, you, we, we hear him and hear warnings about them and hear and see them in the book of Acts for crying out loud. There are false teachers and false Christ. I've I got a book right here. goes back through the history of the false Christ and, and people claiming to be the Messiah early on before 70 AD. Now, if, if Jesus gives this warning about false Christ being a sign for the, his second coming, this these deceivers and false teachers and false Christ have been present over and 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 over again 
since 33 AD. We're in 2022. I mean, at some point, the, the significance of the sign becomes absolutely lost because the sign has been shown 8 billion times. So why would the curriculum ignore 70 AD? What they should be doing is saying, see, there were false Christs prior to 70 AD. In fact, this, this sign would have had more impact pointing to 70 AD than it does to, to whenever Christ is going to come back at some undisclosed time in the future. Because first of all, I mean, the, the false teachers have been around so prevalent that like the sign has lost its meaning. This, this sign would have meant something to someone living there in 33 AD and immediately start seeing these false Christs and going, okay, okay, seven, the destruction of the temple is coming. As soon as they started seeing false teachers and false Christ, they would have been like, uh-oh, the, 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 the destruction of the temple, it's coming, it's coming. It would have made sense. Say 40 AD to 70 AD, right? 30 year period, that would have been a very powerful sign and, and the false teaching would have gotten worse and worse and worse. Why they, why they just completely make it about us. Next, an increase of international conflict and war. Wars and rumors of war will keep on coming no matter the season of the earth's history and they will continue as long as the sin rules the world. The, t- the times facing believers will be unsettling, challenging, challenging days. How should we respond? See that you be not troubled. To be troubled means literally to cry aloud, scream, and be terrified by an outcry. Jesus told us to prepare in advance to say no to our tendency to fear. We are to trust God for our future instead of caving into frightful circumstances. Once again, they make it about us, and they're making this about a sign for Jesus coming back. If war and rumors of war is a sign for Jesus coming back, do you realize how meaningless that sign is? There have been... Count how many global conflicts there have been on earth since 33 AD. You can probably Google it. It, it, The sign becomes meaningless, but it would have meant something for people living somewhere between 33 and 69 AD. They would have seen war. They would have seen armies. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, the temple's going to fall. The temple's going to fall. We got false Christ. We got wars and rumors of war. The temple's going to fall. The temple's going to fall. Those signs would have given a sense of urgency. A, the, another war on earth doesn't make, give me any more sign of urgency because there's only been a bazillion of them. Another false teacher doesn't give me any sense of urgency because there's only been a billion of them. And I'm using hyperbolic numbers just to, to prove a point. They completely ignore this. Then they go here. An increase in natural disasters. Natural disasters like famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places and a variety of other destructive signs will become even more pervasive and they, uh, than they previously were. Although people in the Old Testament viewed famines as a sign of God's judgment, these events will not be evidence that God has abandoned us. Instead, they are proof that God's plan is unfolding according to his will. Wars, famines, and earthquakes are small ripples in the pool of history. They do not signal the end of the age, but they are the only the beginning of the sorrows. The analogy to sorrows help us to understand that part of Christ's teaching is related to the end times instead of exclusively referring to the destruction of the temple. Since the temple was destroyed near the beginning of the early church, birth pains would not have been a helpful analogy of things to come. Just like labor pains in the process of birth, these events will increase in frequently, frequency and intensity, intensity until Jesus returns in power and glory. Again, that makes absolutely no sense to me. You know how many of these things have happened? 
There's been thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of earthquakes and famines and disasters. No, this would have been, in fact, let me read it to you. You shall hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against nation, and there shall be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Well, as soon as they started witnessing these things happening, right after the ascension of Christ, it would have been like, oh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. The temple is going to fall. The temple is going. This would have had, first and foremost, it would have made sense to point to 70 AD. It makes no sense to point to the second coming. Because these things have happened so many times, the sign becomes meaningless. It would be, it would all, and I know this is going to sound, I know this is going to sound mean, but it would almost be like saying, you know what a sign of the, of the second coming is breathing. Every time you breathe, it's a sign of the second coming. After about 900 breaths, you'd be like, I breathe continually. So the sign means nothing. Well, okay. I mean, all these, I mean, every time there, a rock is thrown in the world, people are like, hey, that's, Jesus is about to come back. Anytime an earthquake happens, Jesus is about to come back. You're like, you know how many earthquakes there's been? You know how many wars there have been? You know how many famines there have been? These were pointing to 70 AD for crying out loud. Well, why would you even try to pull these signs into pointing to the end times? Because everyone just looks at you like, you do realize there's been a million of these things. But Christians buy into this. All right, let's see where where they go here. We're going, oh man, we're at 53 minutes. We're going to run out. I'm running out of time here. All right. Um, Then they, question three, how should we evaluate world events in light of these verses? Now, please see what they want you to do. So now they want you to look at your newspaper. They want you to look at the news. And how should you interpret them in light of these verses? What do they want you to do? Every time you see about a war or an earthquake or any time you see any of these things, oh, Jesus is coming soon. Stop it, people. Stop it. These were signs for 70 AD. Now, I'm not saying everything in the chapter is 70 AD. We're going to allow, we're, we're, we're going to work through Matthew 24 and use a preterist. I think I said preterist earlier. Now I'm thinking I said it incorrectly, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I, I didn't say the word preterist wrong. Pre, we're going to look at it from a preterist point of view. We're going to look at it using preterism as our guide. And we, that, we were going to do that tonight, but we'll do that hopefully Sunday night. And, uh, and we're going to allow the preterist, and, and I have a preterist book here. And we're going to rely on a, a, a one of the famous writers in preterism. We're going to we're going to allow them to speak because I want to hear their perspective. I'm not saying preterism is right that everything in Matthew 24 has already happened. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying for crying out loud, these very first signs, the only thing way they make sense is if they're pointing to 70 AD. They lose all meaning by the time you get to 2020. I think they lost all meaning by the time you get to 1980. They lost all meaning, meaning by the time you got to 1990, by the time you got to 2000. I mean, for crying out loud, 33 AD to 2000. I mean, I think you can go, well, I, okay. Every time they, one of these things happen, I mean, war, rumors of war. I mean, World War II, that, I mean, that would have been like, okay, if, if World War II is not a sign of Jesus coming back, I give up. Well, that was a war of war, a world at war. I mean, World War I, World War II. 
But now it can be a regional conflict in a small country. And people are like, that's it. It's the end of the world. And it's like, would you stop it? And then Christians go write their books and sell their books and hold their conferences and everybody spends money. And then the book is not worth the paper it was written on five years later. Clearly, those initial signs have to be 70 AD. They don't make any sense other than, other than in that context. All right, now, 56 minutes. How much time do I have here? Okay, maybe I can finish this. All right. Then they quote Matthew 24, 9 through 14. All right, I don't have time to read Matthew 24, 9 through 14. Uh, you can read it. Um, we've already... Uh, yeah, we've already read it once, but uh, for time's sake, I can't read it again. And here's what they have to say. Jesus painted a bleak picture of what believers would experience as the last days approach. Once again, they take Matthew 24, they immediately apply it to where? You and me and the end times. And again, just look at some of them. Uh, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. He's speaking to the disciples. You, you're going to be delivered up. Well, what happened between 33 and 70 AD to many of the disciples? Read the book of Acts. Stephen is stoned to death. These things start happening to them. All right? Uh, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to continue. Jesus painted a bleak picture for what believers would experience as the last days approach. For one thing, hatred will only grow towards those who follow Christ. And I just think, what? So now persecution is a sign of the end times? Think about all the persecution that's happened in the history of Christianity, especially in the early church. I mean, like, again, it's a, it's a sign that doesn't mean anything anymore. Hours before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus warned his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. The hatred of the world is just, it's just what should be expected. I don't know how this is a sign of the end times, but it would have clearly made sense to them between 33 and 70 AD, seeing the hatred and the persecution. The world may hate us, but when our afflictions are set on, when our affections are set on Christ, we are not as concerned with the world's opinion of us. Persecution will make a person either stronger or weaker. We can endure because of Christ with us and, and the sure hope we uh, have of a future with him. But, but not all will endure. Those who truly know Christ will persevere to the end, but many shall be offended. Unfortunately, many even today may claim to be Christian, but their hearts have never been transformed by the salvation, forgiveness, and grace of Christ. They went out from us because they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. Again, they just completely, 70 AD no longer exists. History no longer exists. It's a future, future. Remember, they said it contains both, but then they've not done one thing to show you how any of these things are applicable to 70 AD. I, that is such, to me, scriptural malpractice. And then they take all of these signs that have been going on since 33 AD and then somehow say, see, 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 see. Somewhere around 33 AD, I know sometimes there's a debate on when Jesus actually was crucified. Okay, we, I'm not here to get into all of those speculations, but you get the idea. Like, hey, I'm going to tell you, yeah, some people believe this contains history and future, but we're going to ignore the history and just make everything in this view. So basically what they've done, even though they've acknowledged that Matthew 24 may have both past and future, they've completely ignored the past and they've made all of Matthew 24 
future. That's exactly what they've done. Preterist makes it all past and many futurists makes it all future. And a lot of the people who claim that it's both are disingenuous because over and over and over, they apply everything to the future. As a result of the stress of persecution, those pseudo-Christians will turn on, on one another, creating ruptured relationships as they betray one another and hate one another. The spiritual vitality of so many will be drained away and the love of many shall wax cold. This brings to mind the image of someone blowing on something to cool it off. Unfortunately, the chilling winds of persecution and the increase in lawlessness will cause many to claim Christ to have uh, to have a spiritual cool down. But Jesus added um, that... He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. To, to whom exactly was he referring? Does it mean that we must endure to the end to achieve salvation or that he will endure to the end because he has salvation? The latter meaning is the only one consistent with God's word. So now they're going to get into an argument about, so does this mean you can lose your salvation, not lose your salvation? They've, they've completely lost the plot and not even applying this to actual people living between 33 and 70 AD and how this would have like very literal implications. All right. I mean, uh, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Like is, is being saved, like they're going to survive 70 AD. Like, like they're not even bringing that even into, they're turning this now into whether someone can lose your salvation or not. It's just, it's crazy. All right. Christ culminates this section, and he, they say more there. They get into a whole discussion about whether you, you know, you cry, you can't lose your salvation, and so they, they get into a whole discussion about that. But I don't think it has anything actually to do with what we should be focusing on there. Christ culminates this section with a pointed challenge, a motivating promise. Verse fourteen is about world missions. While Matthew twenty eight eighteen through twenty is Jesus' commandment to go evangelize and disciple. Matthew 24, 14 is Jesus' promise that one generation will succeed in finishing the great task that others have begun. That task is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in all the world. The gospel is about God's rule and reign. The aim is to proclaim the gospel so that all nations might know King Jesus, find salvation and worship him. The gospel message will be a witness unto all nations or more specifically to all ethnic groups with cultural and language distinctions. These distinctions make it hard for the gospel to flow naturally from one group to the other. This is why we must be intentionally in taking God's good news to the ends of the earth. No person, group, or force can stop God's stated purpose to be known and praised among the nations. It is certain. It is a certain promise that God will bring to pass. We must not let persecution keep us from sharing the gospel around the world. All right? Now, I agree. That Matthew 24, 14, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. They clearly make it future, saying they don't believe it's happened yet. The question is, and here's your homework. I'll just give you your homework here. This is simple homework tonight. Matthew 24, 14. Has it been fulfilled? Look up every commentary you can find. Preterist, futurist, historical, everything you can find. Has it been fulfilled? Look for the best argument. You can, you can type in, probably even in Google, Matthew 24, 14, has it been fulfilled? Find the arguments that say it has. Find the arguments that say it hasn't. Just summarize the arguments. 
You don't have to write them each down. You don't have to write down the source. I, I just want to make it simple. I don't want this to be a, an all-consuming thing. Just a simple like, I found four commentaries that said it has, found four commentaries that says it hasn't. Here's the basic summary of their arguments. That's that's all you have to do. If you want to write down the sources which you find it, great. You, do, you, you, know, you can cut and paste and put it in an electronic file. I don't care how you do it. Uh, I don't want this to be uh, a super, I want it to be more fun just seeing the different arguments more than, uh, than work. I want it to just be enlightening. All right, now we're an hour and four minutes. We're going to have to stop there. All right, and that pretty much brings us to the end of the curriculum. I do want you to uh, go to the curriculum and look at uh, the next section is engage and look at what they tell you to do to engage with the lesson. And you can, you can tell me what you think about that. All right. I'm going to stop there. All right. Was that helpful? I don't know. We worked through the curriculum, which is one of the things I wanted you to do this week. So if you weren't able to do it, I just did it for you. I wanted you to find if they mentioned 70 AD. We found that. We see that they mentioned that, the, that Matthew 24 has both history and future. And then they demonstrated they don't care about the history because they focused all on the future. All right. Um, I, I think someone just said a good place to find um, online commentaries. If you just type in Matthew 24, 14 on Google, just, you should see like, it should be like number two or number three. It should say, it should have Matthew 24, 14 and, and the, the address will be something biblehub.com. Biblehub gives you a bunch of commentaries. That's a good place to start. Or just type in, has Matthew 24, 14 been fulfilled on Google? And then you'll probably get a lot of articles, but the commentaries, in fact, let me, I'll just do it really quick. I'm going to go to Google really fast. Opening up Google, Matthew 24, 14, and it's, see, the first one is Bible Gateway. The second entry is Bible Gateway. Then they have people also ask. I'm skipping that. Uh, the next one is Biblia.com, and then the next one is BibleHub.com. If I click on it, it's going to show me Matthew 24, 14 and all the English translations, all right? Now, you may want to read all of the English translations to see, oh, well, maybe, wait a minute. That would be a lot easier to fulfill. You can look at that. And then when you get all the way down underneath that, you'll start seeing commentaries. You'll, you'll, have, uh, you'll have two commentaries right there. And then underneath that second one, it'll say parallel commentaries. You tap on that. And it opens up how many commentaries here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. You'll have thirteen commentaries on Matthew twenty four fourteen. I will post this. I'm going to post uh, all the commentaries in Discord. I'm going to post it in Discord right now. So everyone can see, here you go. Enjoy. All right, I just posted it and Discord. So for those in the Discord channel, there you go. All right. All right, it's there. Hopefully that was beneficial and helpful. All right, there you go. And uh, just see. Now, we're going to talk about that. I got a preterist book right here. And guess what? They believe Matthew 24, 14 has been fulfilled. So they believe there's a way to make an argument that it has been fulfilled. What is their argument? Inquiring minds want to know. 
I think a, a lot of those beginning signs clearly have to point to 70 AD. They don't make it. I think here's what, here, here's a question. Matthew 24 verses 1 through 13 it, would it be safe to say that all of those could easily be seen as being fulfilled prior to 70 AD? And verse 14 is the first one where you have to go, mm, oh, I don't know about that one. Is verse 14 the first one that makes you go, oh, I'm not so sure? That's a good question. Is verse 14 the one that makes you go, oh, okay, if, if, if this contains history and future, verse 14 is the transition. That's something you consider. All right, I'll stop right there. We're at one hour and eight minutes. Got to stop. All right, thank you for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. For all of the Bible study exercises, download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, go to series. It's all there, Bible study exercises, or on the Sermons 2.0 app, look for Theology Central, find us, look for series, and guess what? You can, uh, if you download the Church One app, you'll have to do a search for Theology Central because that app is a generic app. It's used by lots of different broadcasters. You can make it our app. But if you go to our series, either on Sermons 2.0 or Church One, you can find all of our Bible study exercises. There's well over 200 and they're all available to you for free, and you can find all of the episodes for the Bible, for the Bible study exercise on Matthew 24, all right? I apologize tonight. was did not go exactly the way it was originally planned. We were going to be working on a preterist version of view of Matthew 24, but I thought we would just deviate and go to the curriculum. I hope walking through it that way was helpful. I hope. Maybe. All I can do is hope that it was, all right? But it's an hour and nine minutes, so now I'm not being helpful anymore. I'm being too long, so I'll stop. Thanks for listening. Email me if you have any questions, newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great night. We'll probably do another live broadcast here a little bit later, but uh, thanks for listening. God bless.